Welcome to this podcast is not for profit. Our sector is full of big hearts, tiny budgets and audacious goals. Join us as we explore the forces shaping the nonprofit sector, speak to experts and innovators and share stories from the front lines of the fight to end hunger, poverty and create more inclusive communities. I'm with Michael Shane, and he is with the Center for Collaboration. So I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and your organization and sort of what motivates you. How did you get involved in this sector? I've been involved in the nonprofit sector since the late 1980s. Um, while I was working as a lawyer, I first became involved in nonprofit ventures in the late 1980s in a fledgling organization that was driven by a passionate founder. And we had great, uh, we did some great work in the early days of AIDS education, uh, particularly for kids in third world countries. Mm. Um, So that was a very motivating beginning. I had been involved in politics for um, a long period of time, but I I made a switch away from that to nonprofit activity because I just found that the probability of having an impact and the the kind of passion that people brought to being staff or volunteers in nonprofit organizations was really motivating, and that's something that hasn't changed for me over the years. Um, I have been working with... um, I've been around public policy work for most of my career. I spent some time as a lawyer, and I wasn't doing it then, but for most of the rest of my career, I've been around how do governments partner with other service deliverers and the recipients of service. That problem has sort of interested me. And and prior to that, I guess, from my university days, I've always been interested in the what I might describe as a triangular, triangular relationship between citizen, state, and community. Hmm. What we owe each other, how we meet uh, and make obligations and keep them, and how we... Um, convert at times when when there needs to be a, an updating of a relationship or a changing in the way a service is delivered. So I left my law practice uh, in the early 1990s. I started a consulting business that was focused on public-private partnerships in infrastructure mostly. And I, um, I enjoyed that work tremendously, did that for about seven years, and then I went to work at Deloitte where I led a practice in public-private partnerships Mm -hmm. as part of the corporate finance department and was there for about seven years and was involved in some real um, infrastructure partnerships. Uh, Our team was involved advising the federal government on the train from Union Station to the airport. Mm -hmm. I spent a couple of years uh, leading... Uh, a large team advising the province on the first two hospitals that were built as public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. And so it was a nice chance to marry my experience with uh, law, public policy, and my passions around um, nonprofit service delivery. Hmm. And it's, it's interesting because, like, you know, what's old is new again, right? Like, when it comes to this, and I, I, I think about this idea of, like, public, pub, public-private partnerships – and, and, you know, you, you did this work, like, in the 90s, you started doing this work. And, and, and now everybody talks about collaboration and, and all these sort of things. What's, what's the same? What's different? Like, what has changed in the, in the discussion around it? Or has it? Has it changed? Is it fundamentally the same sort of issues that are being explored or the same barriers uh, that, are, that are being addressed? Or, or have you seen some substantial shifts when it comes to the approach? Uh, well, for me, there's a big difference just in the way that the focus of my work in the 90s and into, uh, I guess, up until about 2007, my focus was on infrastructure, on hard assets, okay. um, schools, roads, bridges, water mm-hmm. systems, and so on. Um, in about 10 years ago, I had exposure to a really interesting project that's led me to be intrigued by collaborations. And um, I th- where it began as an opportunity to help a, a municipal government rethink how uh, a large park, 
the biggest tourism asset in Manitoba, how it was governed and organized. And um, I led a team of people uh, with a bunch of different skills, um, landscape architect, uh, people who had an understanding of the local nonprofit market. I actually contacted the CEO of Central Park in New York mm. to help advise on what the city of Winnipeg should do with something called the Cinnaboyne Park. Mm. At the time, they had four nonprofits operating in the park. Um, they did different things. Um, they didn't like each other. <laughs> they were cannibalizing the same fundraising yeah. uh, opportunities. In addition to those four nonprofits, there were two civic departments that had workers in the park, uh, unionized workers. Um, those workers thought of themselves as park employees, but they were a part of the uh, city of Winnipeg. Um, they were part of the labor union from the city. And to make a long story short, w what we ended up um, designing with, with the help of these nonprofits was a new entity that of which the city was no longer the owner. It was a partner in a new arm's length organization. All the four nonprofits folded into mm. one new organization, and the two civic departments, their employees brought their grandfathered union rights mm. to this new arm's length entity. Mm. So nobody wanted to do this to begin with. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, the... Nonprofits came on board at different times. Mm. One of them was an easy sell. One of them was an extremely hard sell mm -hmm. because they all thought that what they were designed to do would get lost in a larger mission. For me, that's the piece that is fascinating about doing collaborative work. I, I'm, I've set up this Center for Collaboration because of uh, two things, really. One is I think that the funders... The, the, universe, the universe of funding nonprofits has changed. And it's changed in two senses, uh, at least. One is that more funders are looking to get out of the sprinkling of small amounts of money over many, many projects and are looking instead to have bigger impact on a smaller number of projects and impact that they can measure against... Um, a problem that's been languishing for years and hasn't been substantively moved. So funders are looking at that. At the same time, um, just like governments and just like the private sector, I think it's it's high time that nonprofits ask themselves whether what they're doing is the most efficient way, most effective way, um, most impactful way to actually have an impact on whatever their the goal is that they're trying to achieve. Hmm. I think it's not okay to say we've been around for 40 years or 30 or 10 and this has been our clients mm -hmm. and this is what we do and we would like our funding to be iterative year over year. I, I don't, you know, clearly there are a lot of challenges like housing, uh, food shortages, poverty in general that are not being substantively moved and I think it's quite fair for both the funders to say could we do this a different way? And for nonprofit organizations to have their feet held to the fire and ask whether they are impacting the pro whether they're impacting the situation in the way their mission defines. Mm. Part of what comes from that, and part of what interests me, is trying to look collectively, strategically, if you're in the nonprofit sector, at what are what are the big goals that you're trying to achieve instead of assuming that um, problems are geographically based. They aren't. Problems tend to exist in amorphous ways. And I think it's incumbent on the nonprofit sector to start thinking differently about how to play together. Hmm. <clears throat> and I'm wondering, like, because you, you mentioned this, this specific sort of instance where you were trying to put together four nonprofits that were working in the same, literally in the same space, but that weren't necessarily collaborating. I'm wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on, because when, when we approach collaboration as nonprofits, as funders, often we approach it from a model of scarcity, right? It's about scarce resources and allocating those scarce resources. And I, and I think that causes a bit of a defensive posture, right? People sort of want to defend their territory and want to mark it out and sort of say, this is my piece of the pie, or this is my territory, this is what I'm doing in here. 
Do you think that there is a different way to approach this? Like, how would you sort of encourage maybe a more abundance-based approach to collaboration? Um, and 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 what what does that take like to get to that point? Because I, I think you know, at least from my experience, a lot of people tend to approach collaboration from that scarcity model. Like we're being pushed in this direction or they're, you know, we're being asked to do that. Well, it's a great question. And I wonder if I could set up a couple of categories to respond to that. I think there's one type of coming together, which is organizations that wear the same t-shirt. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. United Way yeah. have, is in a process of getting its chapters to talk to each other. Um, Heart and Stroke Foundation, the YMCA's of Canada, uh, other federated nonprofits are asking themselves whether having a million chapters is still the best way to do it. Uh, when they were originally set up, it was based on local delivery. What I think the universe has told us over time is that there are a number of commonalities between processes in different jurisdictions and so whether you need to have three CEOs or five uh, of, of any kind of position if that is that what makes the most sense we tend to look through a lens that our locality is different and there is differences there are differences in every individual locality but there are also samenesses mm-hmm. so that's organizations that have the same as I said, same T-shirt. Then there are organizations that um, may be competing in the same space, and I think every community will find that there are probably a number of organizations in the food bank um, space. There are a number of organizations in the affordable housing space, and so on. I think they've tended to think of themselves as competitors for money. They know that whoever the funders are that they turn to have dollars available and the individual organization and its board, it's thinking about its long-term sustainability. And so it comes at seeking funding by looking at the four corners of its own business. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I think over time, a, a number of organizations, and this is a Western world phenomenon. This is not a Ontario or Canadian issue. Um, I think a lot of organizations have come to see that problems um, aren't watertight compartments. That if somebody is if somebody is uh, living below the the low income threshold, chances are it's not just a food issue, uh, and it may not just be a housing issue. And so, part of what interests me is how to get organizations who might never have thought they had a relatedness to other non uh, nonprofit sector. Uh, service provision to actually think about the client Mm -hmm. and less about the organization's mission statement. And I think that that produces, uh, to use your word, uh, abundance. I think that if we we can recast the way we think about some of these uh, most annoying problems, uh, the most unsolvable problems, I think that everything from co-locating services in a in, in a uh, a shared space to uh, partnering with organizations that we may not have in the past thought of as making sense, but when we look through the lens of the consumer, mm-hmm. um, and let me just talk about a senior that might be living in isolation and in need of affordable housing. If you began to look at all of the services that person might need um, and made a long roster of them, you could begin by thinking if that if that was a sensible way for your organization to to look, then you start right from there to be able to identify prospective partners to work with. Mm-hmm. As you start thinking about who are the service providers that that you think are terrific in the various niches of service that are required, and how do you begin to imagine a new alternative for them? I know that in Michigan um, and elsewhere in the U.S., but Michigan in particular. They've explored creating hubs of healthcare services, mm. and so it's in effect a one-stop shop for a wide range of services. In Burlington now, there is an effort to take that model, bring it 
bring it into Ontario and and uh, match it with housing, mm. um, so that you create small communities of well-being uh, for people who have a housing need and um, and you think about creating physical spaces where they can easily access other services that they'll need. I think that way of thinking in a more integrated way about the problem and the client um, turns our current models on their head. And I think that um, I think that's a useful thing to do if only to decide whether your your current way is the only way. Hmm. What's interesting to me is that <clears throat> what you've described here in, in, in a lot of ways just makes sense, right? Like there's a kind of, you're describing sort of a client-centered approach, right? Where you think about the client's journey and you think about, and you try to put yourself in their shoes and then really sort of imagine what are the ways in which they're interacting with the system. So a kind of um, user-focused design effort. Why, why don't you, like, why why isn't this more of the norm? Like, what's stopping more organizations from doing this? Because on some fundamental level, like, it's, it's, it's a simple idea, right? Like, think about the user, design your systems around that user. Why don't we see more of that? Like, what are the barriers to that? I, let me start by talking about what led to the current structures that we've got um, uh, that's led to the design of the nonprofit sector that, as we know it today. Um, I'll start by by referencing the 1960s, but it might have been before that. But for a period of about three or four decades, public money was plentiful. Mm-hmm. And so organizations could um, set up, a, a, a get themselves incorporated, seek out a charitable status, and there was a reasonable chance that they had a um, uh, a mission and a group of backers and and uh, governors who were prepared to lead it that they could get funds. It was a more possible universe uh, in that regard than it is today, and so that went on for years. And funding practices were such that um, uh, well-intentioned funders funders wanted to ensure that each of these organizations, all of which had a a great cause, all of which had a story, all of which had clients, would continue to exist. Mm -hmm. They each had a a tale to tell when they wrote proposals or when they made um, funding submissions. So it was a world of plenty Mm -hmm. when when organizations were growing that way. The challenge has been and I picked 1993 as a, a, a time of change when the federal government, uh, when Paul Martin was the finance minister, when they decided they were getting out of a lot of the funding that they were mm-hmm. in. They were transferring authority over a number of things to the provinces, who in turn transferred authority over some things in Ontario. Housing is a good example to the municipalities. Um, but the municipalities didn't have taxing power. They only had power over property taxes. And so suddenly we have a whole new design of our, uh, without it being a formal announcement, a whole new design of the tapestry of social services. There's no longer the kind of money that was coming from the federal government. The provinces were being squeezed in a different way. And so it's been a slow drip. It wasn't an overnight announcement that the world is changing. I think the organization's... um, I'll start with funders because I think there are some, um, a number of funders. Some of them are community foundations. Some of them are organizations like Van City Trust or uh, the McConnell Foundation, the Medcat Foundation, many others, who have started to think from some while back, I'll say 10 or more years ago, about impact. What difference is the money that we're investing making in addressing problems? And I think that um, that was very forward-looking thinking on their parts because they looked at years of a historic funding model and felt that it wasn't really uh, producing the dividends that they'd hoped. And I think the organizations that were early, the, the nonprofits that were early ad, um, adopters and adapters came to understand that the funders were heading in a different direction. And if they wanted to be successful applying for funds, they needed to begin thinking differently. 
that's been a slow process because it's hard unless somebody is telling you they're cutting off your funding mm-hmm. you're inclined to be optimistic about what could happen the next year mm-hmm. and so i think it's been a it's been a game of inches although my sense is that the need for collaborating is gathering some steam if only because funders are saying we are now creating explicit pools of capital that you can only apply for if you come with multiple parties. And some of them are making it, some funders are making it even more attractive because they're saying, come to us, and if the project merits, we'll give you multiple years mm-hmm. of funding. So suddenly the ball is in the court of the nonprofits to think in a more textured way, maybe even a more sophisticated way, about how. If they brought a number of partners, how could the partners relate to each other? What would they offer? What would be the benefit for the clients? And back to the word impact, what would be the outcome and potential impact of working it in that more integrated way? So, um, I, you know, I, I, I think it's still going to take some time for some organizations who are um, finding their way in this new funding environment Um to change their way because um, there is a, cer- a certain tendency to feel that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I, I do think that the way funding is distributed is going to be the change agent over time. And my guess is that more and more funders are, are going to be directing uh, applicants to, um, to come in a collaborative way. And so the onus will be on um, service agencies to figure out what that means and how to do that most effectively. I guess the other thing I would say, which I think is very important, is when money was plentiful, there was a standard route to producing proposals and figuring that you might get last year's cost plus inflation. I think the successful nonprofits now need to think like entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They need to imagine that the funder is looking at a stack of submissions and you need to ask yourself, what's going to separate me from, or my organization's submission from the others? What's the wow factor based on what I see to be the criteria of the funder? And I think, I think that needs to be the calling of every nonprofit organization because that's who's going to, that's who's going to find themselves being funded. What's interesting here is like, you know, you've identified essentially a shift that is required here to think like an entrepreneur, right? To approach these questions in a quite a radically different way, right? I mean, if you think about the sort of traditional structure of a board and the sort of governance model and the approach to sort of writing these funding applications, it requires a certain set of skills, a certain kind of set of competencies that I think nonprofits have become pretty good at, right? And when you look at at some of the more successful uh, applicants um, to to some of these things and some of these organizations that have been funded over years and years and years, uh, you know, there is a, there is, you know, a way in which, you know, you get what you design for, right? So the mm. system produces, um, produces over time the things for which it, 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 it's sort of designed to create. So how do we then transition from this, from this one model, right, that I think the sector has become used to and like you said, it didn't just change overnight. And I think this is what makes it hard, right? Like it, it's, it, it's these slow signals that kind of trickled through a series of channels, right? Um, starting from the federal government, but making it all the way down. And, and the signs weren't always like, it's not like it was written on the wall. It's been slow to come. So how, how does um, maybe say a traditional nonprofit that's been delivering services in a particular way, how do they adapt to this? How do they make those changes and build those new competencies, right? What do they, what, what, you know, how do they overcome some of the kind of the historical legacy or build upon that? So first a plug for my own organization. Uh, part of the reason that uh, my, my business partner and I created at this Center for Collaboration is that we see a gap. And the gap is between what funders are um, imagining and beginning to plan and prepare for and what the expectations of non nonprofit applicants, where that is. And we see a space that requires interpretation because 
um, it would be rare for a funder to use a stick to encourage organizations to write certain types of proposals. They're more inclined to offer a carrot by way of a collaborative pool of funds um, and suggesting that they're looking for multi-party type collaborative projects. I think we are interested in, in being interpreters. And so whether it's holding conferences um, to look at, for example, how to get boards together, and let's say it's in a, in a particular area, so I'm going to pick affordable housing, just as one of many examples, how do you begin to get the boards of those organizations into one room to begin talking about the challenges of the next 10 years? And let me just drill down a little bit. In both Burlington and Oakville, the largest population cohort is now people over 60. And it will be for the next 30 years. And so, and this holds true whether you're a business, government, or a nonprofit, but how do you begin to plan for that market? How do you begin to think about everything from what will the service needs be of that uh, cohort? Um, all the way through to what will the capital and infrastructure needs be of that group. Mm -hmm. So if if you're able to come together with multiple boards, and whether it's you're all in the housing business or you're in the housing, healthcare, and something else businesses, you're able to talk about the client and begin to imagine his or her journey over the next and, and I'm, I'm just talking about one cohort at the moment. This is true for every cohort. But when you, when you look specifically at, at people 60 and over, obviously people are living longer. Uh, many of them are living healthier lives. They don't just need housing. They need activity. They need engagement. And so when you think of organizations that could come together, um, um if they're all alerted to the same, I'll call it demographic possibilities, you step back from imagining uh, your annual plan in your nonprofit or your three-year plan, and you try to widen the lens to a longer stretch of time. And by looking at the client, you begin to imagine how might we service a larger number of people, some of which would be revenue to our organization, some of which by just our relatedness would involve others as well. So I guess I see the board as key because the boards are as good as the information that's put in front of them generally. I mean, ideally you pick people to sit on your governance team mm -hmm. because they bring a wide range of skills and experience, mm -hmm. but they tend to generally follow the requirements the information put in front of them by the executive director or CEO and his or her team. And I think part of the pushback that needs to come, uh, not just from the boards, it can come from staff as well, is how do we begin to look at the connectedness to other services that that uh, relate to ours so that we can plan more effectively and over a longer term, which means going to funders with bigger, more integrated ideas, uh, which I think are the ones that are going to win the day over time. Um, I think there are forces that cause organizations to stay as they are, and I, I, I don't mean to be critical of them. Um, you know, if you've continued to get funding, then you tend to think about doing things as you've been doing them. Mm -hmm. If you have an association that depends on your dues, um, to remain in existence, they're going to continue to make the case for why this is the model you should uh, persist with. But I, I don't think it takes an insider, um, somebody inside the nonprofit sector, to, to be able to stand back with a wire lens and say, what, what's coming at us over the next number of years? And how do we begin to plan for that? And is there a particular reason we should plan in isolation? Mm -hmm. Those are big leaps for sure. And if you've been doing it a particular way over a large number of years, that's a challenge. Um, and I guess it's in that space that I'm hoping that the Center for Collaboration, through um, things we write, sessions that we run, projects that we lead, that we'll be able to buy, provide examples mm -hmm. of how organizations can do it themselves. They won't all need our 
our assistants to help hold their hand. Um, but it is a very large task in reframing. And then, of course, as you begin to work with others, there's all of the thinking about how do we work together? What kind of transitions does that involve? How do we jointly market and or deliver? How do we govern ourselves? What kind of organizational design do we need? All of those issues are a part of this um, this more complex world. You know, we we work in ways that we're comfortable, right? And again, and again like the, the things that you're describing here, um, what strikes me is that they're just so eminently practical, right? Like there's just something about it that I think once you begin to make that shift of thinking about things from that client-centered perspective and you re- begin to strip away the kind of egos and the kind of practices associated with particular organizations and how they do things and 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 the history with that right like there's a momentum to that there's there's a momentum mm-hmm. and a trajectory to that that in a lot of ways is is really important and 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 I don't want to sort of I don't want to suggest that those those pieces of maintenance and those pieces of sort of those kind of almost like anchor institutions and anchor practices that it's that, that we should just sort of throw them away. Um, but I think it, it's important to realize that, um, that, that when, when you, when you switch that sort of some of those basic assumptions that you're talking about, that, that something happens and certain practices begin to fall into place. But the problem is that when you're not used to behaving in that particular way, that even those simple things, those simple processes are insurmountable, right? It becomes like when you, when you mentioned um, talking to boards and bringing them together, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about this, about, about like how do, you, how do you get two boards that maybe have completely different cultures, completely different um, uh, approaches to, uh, to their understanding of the problems? How do you get them working together on an issue? Um, what are, what are some of the strategies that you would use, or what are some of the, you know, um, yeah, what are some of the approaches you would use to to get over some of those things? I want to just comment on what you said a moment ago about um, um, if we've been doing things for a certain length of time. You know, this is true in every sector. Mm-hmm. In the commercial sector, you've got clients mm-hmm. uh, that you don't want to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the government space. You may also have a clients of a different nature in the nonprofit sector. For sure, you have constituent users of your service, mm-hmm. and so the, I, the the first fear that comes to mind is: Are we um, making life more difficult for them? Are we changing? Mm-hmm. Do are we trying to change their expectations? So I think those are those are common fears, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not suggesting that those be ignored or mm-hmm. or minimized i think they have to be quite central mm-hmm. i i think i think part of the opportunity is to serve your existing clients mm-hmm. in a more integrative way and rather than take away in fact add to um the services they might find in in one place in terms of bringing boards together i mean certainly from from the center of collabor- for collaborations perspective we are going to hold forums um, that are explicitly for m- members of boards uh, and ideally the CEO or executive mm-hmm. director. Mm-hmm. And we will start at the general level by holding forms about why it makes sense to begin to plan in a way that may be broader than your current mandate mm-hmm. or to find out who's serving a similar mandate mm-hmm. and whether they're close enough geographically to make it worth talking with each other. Then our 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 plan would be to actually bring subsectors together. And we would look at bringing boards, for example, in the housing space or in the um, food space or in the uh, sports and recreation. I mean, it, yeah. it really applies to any subsector of the nonprofit sector. And um, we would be inviting them to come to something which we believe will make them feel better at the end, although the the journey might be confusing along the way. And the the third element in that is our assumption is that coming out of those types of meetings, there are going to be organizations that have an aha moment Mm -hmm. and are going to say to us, okay, now I understand a little bit better what some of the models are Mm -hmm. and I understand some of the best practices. And um, they may say to us or they may do this on their own, 
that they want to talk to organizations B, C, and D because they think in, in the universe that they're hearing about that those five organizations might come together at the very least to explore. Because this is a this is a multi-stage process. I mean, in the beginning, you're just trying to find out what's out there. Mm-hmm. You're trying to understand who's trying what, just as a part of your regular knowledge mm-hmm. gathering. Mm-hmm. At some point, as you begin to have an idea about what you might like to explore, you start to think about who else might we like to explore this with. Most organizations will have a, a good sense of who's out there, mm-hmm. but they may also want some advice on on dating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just that in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, Do you share um, a bunch of things in common, uh, whether it's you know some list of clients, maybe it's geography, maybe it's um, a mission, uh, some combination of that and more that makes you want to say, let's let's have somebody facilitate a discussion or a series of discussions between um, our various parties and see whether we might come up with a set of principles around which we're going to have a discussion um, and do a number of early stage analysis type things to see whether we could actually be on the same page about where we see the next five to ten years in a service area. And only after you've spent time doing that might you then decide we're going to go ahead and see what an integration might look like. But there is a lot of dating. There's a lot of information gathering at the front end um, that would precede most of these, but I and I talk about the boards because I do think a lot of uh, board members have enough outside experience from the nonprofit sector or government or business to have seen these issues arise in other sectors, and or have lived it themselves in organizations that they're in, and like you responded to some of what I was describing, I think it's not uncommon for people to say, yeah, focusing on the client that actually makes quite a bit of sense. Um, we don't need to throw out all of what we're thinking about. It's not that kind of a dramatic change. But if we're going to go to funders and try to, try to bring them the next best idea, then thinking collectively with others who are offering services might be a way to come at it. One interesting example, and in, I was talking before about seniors, and I, uh, I'll stay with that theme for a second. One of the things I've come to know a little bit about in our community is that there are a number of day programs for older adults uh, suffering with forms of dementia. And there are respite uh, care centers where families are able to take their loved ones to a location and uh, the loved one can spend time there doing activities Mm -hmm. in a group of people who are similarly situated. There are 11 of these in Halton and, and Peel. All of them have some need to grow. None of them have an easy time growing in the existing Mm -hmm. space they're in. Um, And having worked with just one on helping them think about a strategic plan, the most obvious thing to me is that they need to think about how uh, how to grow, and part of that growth will probably be physical. They need to be in a different space. And once you open the question about space, um... It's hard not to then ask, well, if we had other space, what else would we do in it for these people that, um, that, you know, I've described one type of user and one type of need. But I think the same set of questions follows in other areas. If we had if expansion means uh, or at least could mean uh, moving into a bigger space, what else might we offer in that same Hmm. space? Hmm. So, uh, sorry, just one uh, uh, sub example is one of the things for these users uh, of, of these day programs is ideally they get some physical exercise, whether it's sitting in a wheelchair or sitting in a chair or standing. Um, and the staff in these organizations aren't all equipped to know what might be the best and most useful. So an organization that I'm familiar with, the YMCA, um, one of the challenges for that organization is to think, can we offer services and should we offer services outside of our own building? Hmm. Do people need to come to us for service or might we go out and provide it? And of course, once you begin to ask these series of questions, 
it opens up a range of possibilities around things that you just may not have thought before because there wasn't a reason to. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how just asking these questions can lead down these paths, right? And how often when you're in that kind of maintenance mode, when you're in that kind of, um, you know, we've always done it this way, it's always worked this way, you don't ask those questions often. You're absolutely right. You know, there's there's all these sort of external pressures pushing us towards collaboration. There's definitely a sort of a, I think a, a, a general rhetoric about efficiency uh, that under uh, under underlines a lot of the discussions surrounding this. Right, we want to be efficient with our with the use of our of our of our shrinking uh, dollars and our investments. We want to make sure that the, that there's an impact that's being generated in here. But I'm wondering what you think about maybe the flip side like what are some of the dangers of some of these asking some of these questions and and specifically what i'm thinking about is is this idea of mission drift and what happens when organizations sort of have one foot in the old model and one foot in the new model right because often like you've been describing a situation where collaborations happen and often they're in kind of disproportional, uh, you know, so you might have one organization that's very large and one small organization. They come together, they date, they find out they have something in common, they want to take it to the next level. You know, they, they introduce their parents to each other, all this kind of thing. But that doesn't happen in an equal dynamic. And sometimes when you have larger organizations, um, you know, this I, mission drift is a very real thing, right? You get, you people start to almost cannibalize these other spaces and they start moving into places that frankly, sometimes they're not, they're not the experts in, right? And, and you, you start expanding. So it might be a food security organization that all of a sudden decides that, well, we're dealing with people with housing insecurity, so why don't we begin advocating around this? Or we're dealing with physical exercise, so why don't we start offering this? And, and to a certain extent, it makes sense, right? But it also starts to push them in a way where maybe it's that organization that's been doing that and only that, that they're the experts in doing that. And, and in the overzealous pursuit of these kinds of efficiencies and other things, we end up sort of recreating the wheel and pushing organizations into place, into spaces that maybe they shouldn't be in. So I'm wondering what you think about, about that and how we avoid maybe some of the problems around that. Because, you know, sometimes, sometimes those that have been doing it for the longest time have figured it out in a way that, that these new entrants... We don't want to always assume that just because you're new in a space that you can that you can do something better. Well, I have um, I have two completely different answers to that complicated question. Um, as you were describing the bigger and smaller and coming together and and the benefits of of not if you have particular expertise, I think a little bit about. Um, the legal community just as something I know a little bit about because at some point um, there was a huge push, uh, at least in Canada, but I know it's around the world, to become part of larger and larger law firms. And at the same time, there were organizations who fit the description that you just provide. They were... Um, they were patent agents or they were um, special specialists in in some area of the law where it just didn't make sense for them to be part mm -hmm. of somebody else's overhead, somebody else's um, uh, national mandate or international mandate. And I think it's true for a number of other professional areas, and I know it's it's true in um, in lots of other fields of practice. So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. And I particularly think, and uh, you know, forgive me for coming back to money, but I, I think if you're an organization that does something extremely well and you have developed a, a committed following of funders, be they public or private, uh, community foundation or individuals, um, and you don't feel a, a financial squeeze and you don't feel that your customers would be or your clients or your users would be better served in a um, a multi-service organization then um, stay as you are mm -hmm. I think there are lots of organizations that fit that category and I think my description of why to collaborate um, while I probably spoke of it as it sounding like the panacea of all evils, mm -hmm. uh, it isn't, and it won't be without a lot of lumpiness uh, along the way. Um, 
I, I think that the challenge for every organization, and I think this is again true across the sectors, but particularly I, I feel this way in the nonprofit sector, is it's not good enough to think in one and two year cycles. Mm-hmm. I think that if you're a steward of an organization, you need to think about the medium term at least, uh, if not the long term. And so figuring out how you're sustainable in rolling five-year cycles. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of organizations develop a strategic plan that might be a plan for three or four years. My advice to them would be to have two plans. One is the three- or four-year plan, and the other would be a rolling seven- to ten-year plan that is changing all the time based on circumstances mm-hmm. um, and that you're keeping your eye on the horizon beyond the specifics of your strategic plan, just recognizing what the changing dynamics are in your marketplace and whether that's um, a new for-profit entry, uh, entrant into your market or changes like I've described in for-profit funding. I think one of the interesting things to watch and it's been going on for a few years in Canada, but I think is only growing, is there are now more private organizations that are setting up social impact funds. And they're different than than a community foundation or a government. They may be looking, and housing is a particularly good example in this area, where there are a number of developers who are prepared to provide financing and other expertise and they are not looking for market-level returns. They're not looking for no mm-hmm. return, mm-hmm. but they're looking for something different. And what interests them is actually social purpose. Mm-hmm. It isn't just market return. And so they are, I won't say a new, but relatively newer player into this space. Um, and uh, alliances can be developed with those kind of organizations. I mean, social housing, as I say, has been one area in particular where in Western Canada... Organizations like the Vancouver Trust and Edmonton and Calgary have spent a lot of money uh, providing bridge financing and other kinds of dollars for housing. Mm-hmm. They know there's going to be a return on their investment because there are revenues or there are there are um, rents paid on the housing, and so they will get their money back and maybe something more. That is a that is a brand new opportunity for uh, a lot of organizations that they just didn't see that type of funder in the past. Mm-hmm. But back to your question about is collaboration for everybody, I mean, this, the straight answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if you're doing something that is that specialized, of course, you always have the challenge of being current. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means in your organization, whether it's offering um, best uh, an example of a best practice tried in other jurisdictions, uh, being aware of... Uh, training and keeping your senior staff up to date on what's being tried in other places. Uh, but I, I, I think as much as anything, you, it depends on a one or more funders who are very committed to your cause. And if, um, if you have that kind of tight-knit group, that's great. And I think you want to be thinking beyond annual fund campaigns. You want to be thinking about multi-year and even uh, uh, gifts um, uh, upon death of, of people who've been funded. Because there's been a lot, I was involved in an organization that recently, out of the blue, got a $100,000 gift from somebody who's been following what we've been doing and is very enamored with the service we deliver. Um, so there isn't a one size that fits all. I think what what does, what should pass the eyeballs of anybody who's in a leadership position in the nonprofit sector is that big funders are changing their lens and you just want to make sure that you don't fall out of too far out of step mm-hmm. with with where the money is going mm-hmm. if you had a magic wand and unlimited budget what is the one thing you would do to improve our community hmm well that's a great question you know i think what interests me and i don't have a sophisticated enough understanding of it is when when uh, the wide range of nonprofit services and agencies started to grow up, it made sense for there to be one or many of these things in every geographic location. And geographies are often defined by a city or a zone within the city um, or, or a regional municipality. 
I think that it I think that the challenge on the on the horizon is to think in more integrated ways about providing service. I think when you stand well back from something, notwithstanding my answer to the last question, I think that when you think about say the lifespan of a potential consumer and you think about the range of needs that they may pass through, the the advantages of beginning to think about how a consumer or user or customer, how they travel in time and what their needs are, to me is a better lens for thinking about the future than is thinking about each of their individual needs, as I said before, in, in watertight compartments. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to get there um, uh, immediately, mm-hmm. but I think that kind of talk, um, while radical uh, mm-hmm. at some levels, is a way to think um, I believe more effectively about how to meet the needs of a, a wide range of consumers that are now having to go through many different doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that organizations need to disappear and all be, need to become behar- part of one behemoth organization. But I do think if you're thinking strategically about how do we best serve um, the needs of people who we we've been able to follow for years and we can see the path of their mm-hmm. challenges or problems or difficulties, I think that's a pretty big clue to how to plan forward. Mm. I don't know where that's happening yet. I'm not sure who's going to provide the incentive for that to happen. Mm-hmm. But I know I, I read a, a paper by uh, an American university that's writing about integrated service planning. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that an idea at the very least is worth exploring and is worth some thought leadership around because um, it's something that we haven't done unusually well as 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 we've been busy giving up money between organizations. Mm-hmm. And without being critical of that model, I just don't think it's the only model for solving social service problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems interesting too because I think what it opens up, and I think this is something that as funders we struggle with, is we're always looking for outcomes, right? And for outcomes on a relatively short time horizon because we're frankly reporting to donors, to taxpayers, to, um, you know, foundation boards, whatever it is, right? We have we have some sort of reporting requirements and those are usually anchored in some kind of measurable outcome. I think what you're describing here is essentially research and development, right? Like a, a kind of a willingness to fund basic sort of exploratory ideas and to, to to be able to fund them on a scale and a time frame that's long enough to actually get some of those um, to get a sense of what works what doesn't and, and to me that that, that seems like a you know fairly radical shift um, uh, from a funder's perspective um, but it also asks very different things from service providers right it, it requires different kinds of feedback mechanisms it requires different ways of interacting with evidence it requires different ways of collecting evidence and 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 really fundamentally different ways of approaching the relationship with as you said with the client so it's not necessarily about servicing one particular need but it requires maybe a more data-centric sort of perspective where we're sort of trying to understand the full picture of that client and what they're doing, how they're interacting with those services, what their needs are, how we can proactively sort of service some of those things and really sort of um, not anticipate what what those needs are, but to provide them in a way that I think um, we're not really used to thinking about. Well, one thing for sure is that while the data going back historically may not be... um, packaged the way we might envision it in a contemporary way mm-hmm. in all of the social services that we might imagine there is there are trend lines mm-hmm. and histories to be looked at mm-hmm. and so if you were somebody that um, again let me pick on housing if you were somebody that was trying to figure out how to make a difference in that uh, space there are years and years of records of how many new units were built mm-hmm. how many people are on a waiting list and, and so on and so on. And so you, it, as you began your research and development exercise, um, you wouldn't be starting, from, you wouldn't need to start from this year or last year or the year before. Chances are there are at least decades of, of 
experience. And I think one needs to challenge oneself to look at that data and say, are we fixing these problems by the methods that we're using or have been using over time? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I would think that the, the obvious conclusion is either this is working and maybe we need to get some of the smaller organizations working together or purchasing resources together or co-locating or your conclusion is it's not actually meeting the targets we had imagined and maybe some re-envisioning is required and I'm not sure where it begins I think it could begin at any one of a number of places let me suggest two it could begin with an education of of donors and I think to the extent that we ask donors to think differently about the landscape of of impact mm -hmm. and we say to them that we're looking at a series we funder are looking at a series of projects where it's going to take um, multiple years to see a return or an outcome or to be able to collect data I think that's part of what um, at least community foundations have been doing some of them have been getting away from, as I said earlier, sprinkling money over every organization that applies and instead are looking at projects that have a much longer tether to them, like developing real estate and getting a return, mm -hmm. a small return on investment, but building infrastructure that in the historically would have been the uh, would have been the purview of governments, but governments aren't always the best or the only ones to take some of these challenges on. Second, I think it's the purview of um, forward-looking executive directors and senior staff. I think it's there; it's in the nature of their business to look at trends mm -hmm. um, and to look at um, both whether problems are being addressed adequately at the moment, uh, looking at where the, what funders are doing, looking at examples in other jurisdictions, so they can be a, a lead player as well. And I, you know, I I still come back to boards. Because I think to the extent that boards are freed up to think strategically and not just be reviewing operate, operational reports, which I think is mostly a waste of time since that's why the staff is there uh, and perhaps a, a, a committee of, of a board. I know that one of the boards that I've been on for the last couple of years, we made a point of getting away from doing that kind of rubber stamping of reports by saying that... It, 50% of every meeting would be spent on a strategic issue. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think it was um, a huge uh, breath of fresh air to board members who felt they were being underutilized, mm -hmm. that they had lots of capacity for thinking in abstract ways about big problems because a lot of them do that in their day jobs. So I think it, there's no one magical source where that can come from, but I, I do think it's part of the challenge of reading what's on the horizon. Well, thank you very much for your insightful comments. I look forward to hearing um, uh, some of the work that's going to come out of the Center for Collaboration. I'm sure, um, I'm sure a lot of um, a lot of what we talked about today is uh, is going to be addressed by uh, this new uh, new organization. Thanks for the opportunity. Let's continue to bring the unignorable issues affecting our community to the forefront. I would like to thank all of our guests and dedicated listeners. This podcast was brought to you by United Way, Halton and Hamilton. Stay social with us and keep the conversation going by following us at United Way HH on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and United Way, Halton and Hamilton on LinkedIn and YouTube.
it's gonna get much brighter.